Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today for episode 257, Matt Corallo of Square Crypto and longtime Bitcoin developer, nowadays more focused on Lightning, joins me on the show to talk about soft forks in Bitcoin. What are they and what's the basics on Taproot and what does it look like in terms of Taproot activation. We get into some of the history and the nuance around prior soft forks in Bitcoin. So useful and educational one for listeners, especially those of you who are newer. This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin and new from Swan Bitcoin is their private client services division built for the Bitcoin purchasing needs of companies and high net worth individuals around the globe. Last August, MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor kicked off the trend of companies buying Bitcoin for their balance sheets. A flood of high profile investors and companies have joined him. Names like Paul Tudor Jones, BlackRock, Square and Tesla. If you are thinking of buying between one and 100 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin over the next year, email Swan's CEO personally. Corey at swanbitcoin.com. He will personally make sure that you get onboarded faster than any other service in Bitcoin. The Swan team takes the time to answer all of your questions about Bitcoin and to help you develop your strategy for allocating into the best risk reward investment in history. An opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family or company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. If you want to get started immediately, Go to swanbitcoin.com slash private and fill out the form or email Corey personally at Corey at swanbitcoin.com. Coinkite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. So we're going through a bull market. It's time for people to start thinking about their security. The cold card is one of the most recommended hardware wallets by Bitcoiners. So if you haven't given it a try yet, I encourage you to give it a go. It has a lot of awesome features like the ability to use it air gapped. You can use it with wallets like Spectre Desktop, Electrum or Blue Wallet to do air gapped transactions. And for the techies out there, cold card firmware version 4 is coming with LibSecP 256k1 deterministic builds and many other improvements there's all sorts of features like an address explorer as well so make sure you go to coinkite.com and use the code lavera for a discount compass is an online marketplace which makes it easier for everyone to mine bitcoin and enhance the bitcoin network's security the anti-cloud mining option compass helps you buy your own asic and secure hosting at great facilities around the world for years we have all heard that mining is only profitable if you're investing tons of money but now with compass everyone is able to tap into economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. And if you're unsure about how to get started with mining Bitcoin, Compass offers hardware and hosting bundles, which eliminates the need for advanced technical knowledge and allows you to get started mining Bitcoin with hardware you own. Visit them at minewithcompass.com and start mining Bitcoin today. And now on to the show with Matt. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, guys, obviously, listeners, you know, we're, we're just having to re-record this. We had a, basically a screw up the first time around, but we wanted to chat about Taproot and soft fork activation. So perhaps, Matt, if we could just start from your side, let's try to keep this accessible for listeners who maybe they are new, they're trying to learn about Bitcoin. So if you could just give a high level explanation, what is a fork and why are we doing that in Bitcoin? Yeah, Bitcoin is a consensus system, right? So you have a ton of nodes out there. They're all uh, checking the rules and making sure that every transaction and every block and everything completely is is valid and and passes all the rules. But what happens when we want to change the rules, right? So we want to add a new feature. Uh, In this case, there's 
some new cool cryptographic features that we want to add to Bitcoin. And so how do we change the rules when there's you know thousands of nodes out there that are all collectively enforcing the rules individually, and we want all of those nodes to change the specific rules that they're enforcing on every transaction. And so this process generally is called a fork, and there's a few different types of forks, um, and we'll get into a lot of details on on what can go wrong in this process, I'm sure. And yeah, so this just generally we kind of do some weird deployment where we try to get nodes upgraded to enforce new rules on the network. Excellent. And then when it comes to this specific fork that we're talking about, so it is colloquially, it is known as the Taproot soft fork. So can you tell us a little bit just for from a newbie perspective, what that is and what are the benefits going to be once we get Taproot? Right. So Taproot's a, a nifty cryptographic trick. And also, it also brings Schnorr signatures, which is another cryptographic advance, uh, primitive that's really useful. Um, it's not going to materially change the user experience of any Bitcoin software, but it can slightly improve privacy, both on the blockchain by having that you don't have to reveal all of the details about, you know, if you're using some kind of complicated multi-sig policy or something really fancy, you don't have to reveal all of those details to the blockchain in every case. So your transactions look kind of more normal, like everyone else's transactions. Uh, Schnorr signatures can be used to improve privacy on the Lightning Network, uh, make it a little harder for uh, nodes in a route to tell what the other nodes in the route and kind of correlate payments across a route. It can also enable some new features. So there's some stuff that people have been working on for years that's uh, probably not going to be done in the next year or more, but uh, cool things around, so there's a, a technology called discrete log contracts, which uh, focuses on bringing kind of more complicated financial instruments like contracts for differences to Bitcoin, and they could be run uh, both on-chain and on Lightning using Schnorr signatures that are included in this proposed Taproot upgrade. But all of that's a little ways out. And for the most part, you know, there's not a lot of new features. It's certainly not anything that your average Bitcoin wallet is going to ever notice uh, aside from, you know, potentially some improved, improved privacy down the line when people are using large multi-sig contracts. Yeah, I think that's all totally, um, uh, yeah, those make a lot of sense in terms of benefits that will come to users. And I think to another point is that if we want to keep advancing Bitcoin, then it's kind of like we have to first sort out how we're going to do soft forks so that we can keep doing future ones. And let's say people want to do other soft forks in the future, whether that is, let's say, any prev out or your uh, great consensus soft fork cleanup that, uh, you know, getting soft forks and having that agreed in the community as a way of, you know, when people are willing to change aspects of Bitcoin, you know, and have we established a way for doing that. So perhaps we could talk through a little bit of the Bitcoin history around doing soft forks. Can you tell us a little bit about what that has looked like historically? Yeah, right. So uh, there's a long history of, of forks in Bitcoin, you know, early on, early, early on in the first year or two of Bitcoin's existence, um, forks were basically Satoshi decided there was a new version and Satoshi announced the new version. And the new version uh, might basically enforce completely different rules. Uh, and everyone was told to upgrade, and they did. And it was a small network, and there wasn't really anyone using it seriously or taking it too seriously, and so it didn't really matter, and that was, that was a completely fine way to do upgrades. Um, over time, so it was a particularly 
bad issue at the time where every time there was a new upgrade, uh, you could construct a transaction that was uh, invalid on the old chain and valid on the new chain. So invalid in the old chain, valid on the new software. And that could result in users who are on the old software following one blockchain and users who are on the new software following a completely different blockchain and creating two completely different coins and two Bitcoins. And now we got to figure out which one's Bitcoin and, and they can't transact with each other. And they're, they're really just two separate networks. So that's called a hard fork. And that's, that's bad. Uh, we don't, we don't want hard forks. And so the, the general principle for the way we do it is instead of uh, completely changing what's valid and what transactions are valid, Satoshi, at some point, basically, the actual code changes seem to imply that if you discovered this concept that we now call soft forks, um, which is if you take the things that were valid before and you purely constrain them, right? So you, everything that uh, is valid in the new software was also, was also valid in the old software. But some things that were valid in the old software are no longer valid. And wait a long time to start enforcing these rules and we, we lean on miners to help enforce these rules so that transactions, so some transactions that used to be valid are no longer valid, but, but all the transactions uh, that are valid now remain valid. Um, this keeps the network together, right? So all the old nodes will still validate the new blocks. They'll see the new blocks, they'll check them, and everything looks great. And all the new nodes will hopefully do the same. Um, but you can add new features this way. So you can take, uh, you can say, we're going to add new signature type um, and the new nodes will enforce these rules and hopefully the miners will too. And then you'll have, you know, all the blocks will be valid and, and you won't have two different networks. Um, but and because all the old nodes will still be able to analyze these blocks and, and understand that these uh, blocks are valid by the old rules. And so we use this concept of soft forks Kind of, I think the community has, has moved towards this being the kind of understood way that we want to do forks because it keeps the network together. And that's kind of ultimately going to be uh, the theme of today, I think, is that uh, splitting the network is bad. About the worst thing you can do is, yep. is end up with two Bitcoins where people can't transact with each other and you're not really sure which one is which. Um, and that's just, it's bad for confidence. It's bad for usability. You don't all of a sudden no one can use Bitcoin and, and you know, if that, if that happened seriously, it lasted a while, probably we would just all you know, give up and stop using Bitcoin because that would be bad. Um, so instead, we all, the community basically, value Bitcoin because it remains together. And that gives us a really strong incentive to form consensus and all agree on what the rules of the network are so that we have one network. Yeah. And one interesting dynamic that I'd love for you to touch on a little bit further or perhaps elaborate is this idea that there might be some user out there with old node software and it's important that that user doesn't get screwed over and lose their connection with the network or you know get off onto some other network. Uh, and it's like um, basically that's the importance of having backwards compatibility or maybe even more precisely, it's more like old nodes having forwards compatibility. Why is that important? Right, yeah. So, you know, we don't know. People forget to upgrade all the time. You know, like we don't have a, a magic wand we can wave and force everyone to upgrade. There's thousands of nodes on the network. Um, there's many private nodes that aren't connectable that we don't know about. Um, there's a lot of large businesses that maybe aren't following the Twitter feeds of various Bitcoin developers. A lot of 
mining pools especially run hundreds, if not thousands of nodes, you know, you don't want to, and, and you don't want it to be the case that someone just forgot to upgrade one of their nodes and suddenly they're on a different network and someone sent them a payment on this weird fork network that no one's paying attention to and they accepted it. And suddenly they realized that it was bogus. It was on this other weird fork and it, it's not a real Bitcoin. And so now they're mad. They, they had a full node. They were doing everything right. Uh, they, they forgot to upgrade, but only maybe one of their many nodes. And suddenly they accepted a payment that was completely bogus and they gave someone, you know, a million dollars and they don't have any Bitcoin for it. Uh, and, and so we, we just don't want that to be case, that, uh, that to be the case. Um, there's, there's even worse scenarios where people have maybe mobile wallets that are uh, connected to servers and they don't know what version of the node software that server is running. Uh, they have no way to check and who runs that server. You know, maybe they forgot to, to update. You don't want to screw all those users. So it's just, it, it's really a mess if you end up with kind of mini chain splits uh, or mini forks um, for, for any user. Yeah. And so perhaps we could just talk through historically the differences in how things have worked. So I guess historically, maybe arguably we could say that the ecosystem was more centralized in the early days and it has been, I guess, progressively decentralizing. And we've been learning a little bit more about how things work because I guess there are different parties and it's a decentralized ecosystem. There's no CEO or top-down dictator here, but there are different actors right there are there's kind of the technical developer community there's the miners uh even then the miners you know there's mining pools and miners and and then there are users and then there are bitcoin businesses could you maybe spell out some of the different roles in the in the ecosystem and what they can each do yeah so yeah like you mentioned and 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 like i said you know in the very early days it was completely centralized satoshi decided and whatever satoshi said goes over time, you know, kind of the, this concept of soft forks was discovered and how that's a much safer way to do uh, consensus changes and, and kind of keeps the network together a little easier. But even among soft forks, you know, you could imagine just shipping a new software, software release and changing the rules tomorrow. And if someone, you know, if some miner hasn't upgraded and they mine some transaction that's invalid by the new rules, suddenly that block is invalid, but all the old nodes will follow it, right? So you could imagine a, a software design uh, that's particularly terrible um, and, and still splits the network rather trivially. So, you know, over time, various ideas have developed about how to do soft forks. Uh, for a while, basically, it was just uh, there's a new release, and this new release says that at some point in the future, maybe six months down the line, uh, some new rules will become active. And hopefully by that point, six months down the line, people will have had a chance to upgrade enough nodes and especially enough uh, miners have had a chance to upgrade that it's it's unlikely there will be any kind of sustain fork. Maybe it'll be one block here or one block there, but nothing that's going to rise to like six confirmations or something. I think maybe the, the best example or the best way to answer your kind of specific question about all the players involved in modern soft forks is to just go through the history of of SegWit and uh, SegWit2x, and uh, I guess what's now referred to as the fork wars, uh, right? So, so at some point in Bitcoin's history, if, uh, a number of years ago, there was a really extended debate over uh, what the the block size should be and what the kind of fundamental scalability metric of Bitcoin should be. Should you have these very large block sizes um, that potentially have no fee pressure and then maybe have trouble paying miners, uh, but Every transaction confirms in a few minutes. Um, or do you want these you know, 
of smaller blocks where you ensure that you pay miners and keep the health of the network running. It's doable for everyone to run a full node and for people to do that if they want to. Um, but on the flip side, of course, you don't get as many transactions. So this this debate naturally has debates in decentralized communities raged for a long period of time. And I think we really kind of figured out exactly how the network works and who all the people involved are and, and what their role is through the, the painful process of SegWit. So SegWit was a specific proposal to slightly increase the block size and also fix a number of other technical issues. It was not a huge block size increase, you know, a lot of at the time, a lot of especially businesses in the space were, were demanding a very large block size increase because their, you know, their, their user numbers showed they needed some, some very large increase. They wanted to fit all their users on the blockchain and, and that's the way they were gonna to continue to grow their business. And so the SegWit thing was proposed. One way that kind of people, uh, over developers over time decided it was a good approach for further de-risking the chance of a network split in the case of a soft fork was it was not just to do this thing where you say, all right, it's going to activate six months down the road, but to say that we're going to give it a year. And during this year, what we're going to say is we're going to say, we want miners to signal in the block. So they're just going to write a little thing in the block that says, I'm ready, I've upgraded to the new software, I'm running it, and I'm ready to enforce the rules. And when you reach 95% of miners uh, writing in their block that says, like, I'm ready to enforce the rules, then via just the software automatically says, okay, looks, 95%, we're good, uh, now everyone's going to enforce the rules. And by relying on hash power, uh, you know, obviously every node in the network is ideally enforcing the rules, but... If you just rely on hash power, at least for a soft fork where you uh, only take some transactions that used to be valid and make them invalid, the miners can enforce that by themselves um, and, and specifically can keep the chain together, right? So if one miner mines something that's, excuse me, invalid by the new rules, then all the other miners will just ignore it like all the new nodes will. And if you have 95% of hash power ignoring it, those new blocks will never kind of form a chain that gets longer than one or two. So SegWit, so back to the back to the SegWit discussion. So SegWit was was released with this design. So it had a, a one-year timeline, and over the course of one year, if uh, in any two-week period, I think it was, uh, would sig had ninety-five percent of blocks in that two-week period signaling readiness, uh, then SegWit would activate. And if we got to the end of the one year and we hadn't ever reached that threshold, then SegWit would simply time out, and we would say, "All right, it's timed out." Uh, maybe we try again if there's a reason to. Maybe there's a good reason why SegWit didn't activate and, and we don't try again. Um, but we get to the end of a year and attempt that. So, okay, so SegWit's released. It's this proposal to slightly increase the block size. Uh, some people view it as not enough um, and argue that significantly more should be done. Um, it, it's kind of unclear. There's also, uh, it seems like it, might have broken some proprietary mining optimizations that some uh, miners were uh, using to get significantly more hash power than their competition uh, that people weren't aware of at the time or, or weren't aware that uh, it was possible to do this in that way. As a result, SegWit never reached the 95% threshold. So for a long time, for, for months and months, it kind of just sat at, I don't know, 50%, 40%, whatever, but nowhere near 95 and it just kind of hung out there. And... 
okay, so we're a ways into this one-year timeout, uh, one-year period, at the end of it's going to timeout, and these businesses who are, who are really hurting, right, their users, uh, they're, they view their business as being killed by this lack of, um, lack of significantly increased block size. So they all kind of get together, or, or a number of these businesses get together in a private meeting uh, and decide unilaterally that Bitcoin is going to change. It's not just going to be a soft fork, but it's going to be a, a much more disruptive hard fork. Um, and we're going to not only do SegWit, but then we're also going to double the block size on top of that. So something like three or four X. And they announce this to the world and say like, this is what's happening with Bitcoin. So so Bitcoin is going to change. We're going to call it SegWit 2X. And at on this date in the future or on the, on the date that we decide in the future, uh, Bitcoin is, is going to fork and that's going to be the new Bitcoin. And we're all going to follow that. And we, these kind of Bitcoin businesses, uh, we have the most users and the most Bitcoin custodian, uh, custodially stored with us. And so we get to decide what Bitcoin is. Naturally, the kind of Bitcoin user base was up in arms over this. Um, the, the concept that a number of, or a small meeting uh, by a number of individuals, but certainly by no means the full set of the Bitcoin community, uh, shouldn't get to decide Bitcoin is for everyone uh, because, well, I mean, I think I think that hopefully kind of stands for itself that it shouldn't be the case that some small group gets to just fundamentally change some aspect of Bitcoin on their own um, because otherwise, what what value would Bitcoin have? We might as well just use PayPal or right. something because it, PayPal is, it works great as long as you don't mind a small group changing who does or doesn't have access to the system and then what the system is on a regular basis. Um, of course, yeah. So, so people so were up I in think... arms over this, right? So we have these kind of two opposing camps now. The it was kind of unclear what was going to happen, right? Here's these these businesses saying we get to decide because we have the vast majority of Bitcoin transactions between us, so we just kind of get to decide, and all these small other small fries get we just ignore them. Um, then a, a a futures market was developed, right? So so Segwit2x, by nature of it being a hard fork, it was going to create two coins. It was going to be Bitcoin and Segwit2x coin. Uh, and there, there was nothing that could be done about that. There were just going to be two coins, right? So uh, one particular exchange, uh, Bitfinex, um, and listed a futures market and said, well, it's going to be two coins. We just run a futures market and anyone can trade. And if you want Segwit2x coins, you can buy those. And if you want Bitcoins, you can buy those. Uh, and, and the market spoke incredibly forcefully. The market said, uh, well, Bitcoin is worth about 90% and Segwit2x coin is worth about 10% of what Bitcoin was at that time. So so uh, Bitcoin was worth maybe 9x plus or minus uh, what Segwit2x was worth. And that basically killed it, right? So, so we learned, I think, clearly that the market gets to completely overrule whatever some group of transactors some group of businesses, even potentially a large group of businesses and a large group of transactors and Bitcoin holders uh, say is that the market gets to just kind of say no. Yeah. If I could just add a little point in here at this point, I think it's probably worthwhile talking about how kind of the timeline here, because this is all going down in 2017, right? So this is after years and years of kind of debate and trying to get SegWit activated. And I think towards mid of 2017, so SegWit actually activated, I think it was 1st of August 2017, if I've recalled that correctly. But then 
there was this whole debate around how basically it was seen as like a you know the Segwit2x people were thinking of it like oh see we're compromising we we want this Segwit thing but we're trying to give the other people a little bit of what they want so we're going to have Segwit and we'll have a block size increase and then as I recall then it was kind of like later towards the end of that year there was a bit of that debate about oh, hang on, why are you taking SegWit without giving us the 2x part of it also? And you're kind of welshing on the deal or you're reneging on the deal kind of thing. Whereas I guess from the small block perspective, it was more like, no, hang on, we never agreed to that. We never agreed to have this 2x component. We just wanted SegWit. And so I guess potentially that was some of the uh, the argument and the debate in in that time, in that kind of period after August 2017, kind of leading to around November or December of 2017, uh, where um, some of the the kind of uh, on Bitfinex, for example, there was B1X coin, which was Bitcoin and B2X coin to represent, as you were saying, the nine to one kind of ratio, correct? Right. So the so the Segwit2x agreement, so the Segwit2x, sorry, this, this private meeting uh, was, was in May of 2017, right? So that was a, a ways before Segwit activated, but but indeed the kind of resolution of Segwit2x was not till a ways after Segwit activated um, when they're, you know, basically the the futures market spoke and, and said no, and uh, the coin had no value, and, and actually their, their software had a bug, so, so it didn't actually create a coin, <laughs> Um, and, and all the Segwit <laughs> 2x uh, tokens expired worthless, but presumably if they they weren't going to expire worthless, then then they would have fixed that bug in some way. Yeah, and if I could add one more thing here, I think it's also probably an important lesson for anyone who's listening. It's this idea that I think in 2017 a lot of people realized that ultimately users control Bitcoin. And I think that was also an interesting dynamic there because previously there were some people who thought miners controlled bitcoin and i think that was something that was not so clearly understood until that time so so contemporarily while this kind of segwit 28 2x debate was happening there was also another debate happening around how to activate segwit right so we had this there was this agreement private agreement by a number of companies to say we're going to change bitcoin said that what we're going to do is we're going to activate segwit and then do a hard fork but their original agreement said we're going to activate SegWit uh, in a way that's uh, different from the rest of the network. So we're not going to just activate SegWit in a way that activates it for everyone. We're just going to do it on our own little on our own little fork. Um, this kind of stalling of SegWit by the miners, um, this kind of lack of activation, led to what was called the, the user activated soft fork movement or UASF. The user activated soft fork, and then specifically the, the BIP 148 was the, the proposal for it, said that what we're going to do is we're going to just say, screw you, this whole concept of soft forks activated by having miners signal was the wrong way to go. It lets miners decide what the rules or block rule upgrade, uh, you know, consensus upgrades, and we don't want that to happen. Uh, it seems like they're doing it out of bad faith and this like, private proprietary mining optimization stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the old way and, and we're going to just say uh, on this date, and they, they picked a date that was a bit before Segway was going to time out, uh, we're going to enforce that every block signals for Segway. Um, so uh, instead of, so they, they basically proposed kind of a, an original style flag day software where it's just on a certain date, a new rule kicks in, and that that rule was 
you signal for SegWit or your block is invalid. Um, and, and of course, then if, if every block signals for SegWit, you'll reach the 95% threshold, uh, and then SegWit will, of course, kick in. Uh, so, so the idea was uh, we force all blocks to signal, and by forcing all blocks to signal, not only do we upgrade, uh, do we activate SegWit for our nodes, our nodes being the kind of BIP-148 UASF nodes, but actually every node in the network, at least that is upgraded in the last number of months, will enforce SegWit because every block is signaled, you reach the 95% threshold, and thus every node, or at least the majority of nodes, will enforce SegWit. And that's kind of what makes the self-fork ultimately active is that the number of nodes and then certainly economic nodes are enforcing SegWit. So you have this, these two things that are kind of coming to a head, right? So you have the SegWit2x thing that's coming to a head, and you have this UASF thing that's coming to a head at the same time. And both sides were obviously very dug in, um, but both sides were arguing for SegWit activation. It's just one side was saying SegWit is a part of a larger package, and one side just saying, screw you, you activate SegWit now. Um, what ultimately what was the resolution to this was uh, something called BIP91. So BIP91 said, uh, basically, we're going to signal for SegWit uh, in a way that in, uh, with the dates picked, we're going to signal for SegWit on a certain date with the dates picked so that it lines up with BIP148 and UASF and that all stays, the whole network stays together and stays one, one blockchain. Um, and by signaling for SegWit on this date, uh, we're also signaling for SegWit2x, and we're also signaling for this hard fork. Um, and so at the end of the day, kind of miners activated BIP91, and users running this BIP148 client also enforced their rules. Um, and even though you had three different parts of the uh, three different sets of nodes on the network that had three different ideas of what the consensus rules were. Ultimately, no block was mined that was invalid according to any of them. And Bitcoin stayed one Bitcoin and one blockchain. And there weren't any kind of large fireworks with forks and then people getting to spend on. Um, so at the end of the day, both sides claim they won. You know, the UASF movement arguably had its, uh, it succeeded. It forced miners to signal. Um, it, the, unlike the Segwit2x movement, which, which failed due to this futures market that showed that there was no demand for their token and for their fork, there was no futures market for the UASF fork, right? So had miners not signaled for Segwit in time, UASF nodes would have forked off and, and been a different chain. Um, there was no futures market. And there was no kind of way to, to appropriately value those and to kind of try to figure out what would have actually happened had miners not signaled. Uh, so we don't really know, but we know at least in this one case, this movement led by Brando users on Twitter uh, was able to put force the hand of miners to into signaling with basically playing a game of chicken and saying, we're going to split the network and we're going to cause a lot of damage and have two different Bitcoins or you signal for SegWit and then kind of BIP91 was a way to, to save face and say, we're, we're signaling for SegWit2x and we're going to do the hard fork too. Um, and we'll keep the network together now. And then we're going to do the hard fork. And then the hard fork kind of fizzled and died because the futures market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let me um, explain some of that as well, just for listeners. So 
as you were saying, it's like a game of chicken. And so some users were saying, hey, we've, we want SegWit. We want some movement on this. We're willing to play chicken now. And so we are willing to threaten that we will fork off. And the risk on the downside is that if, we, if the miners didn't come along with us on this uh, venture, then we would be stuck on a chain that has very, very bad security because it's only got you know five percent or ten percent of the chain security or of the miners. And then on the other side, it's kind of like the miners also have a risk on their side because they don't want to be mining a coin that is very low value. Because if there is enough of an economic impetus, if there are enough users and businesses and and people on that other side of the game of chicken, then they are you know, very, very maximally invested into these hardware units and the operating costs for being a miner that they would be mining on a, a, a valueless chain, if you will. So I guess maybe that's one way to explain the dynamic. Would you agree with that characterization? Yeah, yeah, totally. And 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 we saw also with kind of Bitcoin Cash and other forks that the mining power on the two sides of a fork tracks almost exactly the value, right? And so the, the futures market said that you'd have 9x the amount of hash power on Bitcoin as you would have had on Segwit2x, uh, were the value to remain kind of 9 to 1. Uh, and, and so we don't know, you know, it, it's possible that the UASF movement had enough money behind it, that it would have actually had material hash power and had uh, blocks on its blockchain and had been able to be used. Um, I, I think that's unlikely, uh, but but we don't know. There was no futures market, so it's it's also entirely possible that you didn't have enough money, and all the money would have been on the Bitcoin side, and you would have had this kind of UASF coin that was just off on its own with no blocks. Uh, we just don't know. Yeah, and I guess amongst some of the core developers at that time, they were split too, right? Because some of them viewed this as like, no, this is too much risk. We don't want to do this. And then there were others who were obviously much more pro yeah, UASF at that time. Uh, could you maybe outline, um, you, know, you know, some of the thoughts of some of the developer technical community at that time? Yeah. So, I mean, yes, yeah, so it, was, it was split. Um, I think the kind of Bitcoin core development community, the people who were very active on Bitcoin core ranged from, uh, do you guys have to, to, whoa, 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 stop. This is a really bad idea. Don't play a game of chicken with the network. Because uh, if it does split and there is kind of even hash power on both sides, it's like really bad and might kind of destroy confidence in the value of this thing. There were obviously other developers kind of from, from the broader Bitcoin ecosystem that were uh, a little more pro UASF, um, but it, it, it didn't have, but the kind of Twitter and Reddit, et cetera, community was significantly more pro UASF than I think that the development community was. Yeah. Certainly, the, the Bitcoin core development community. There were there were some notable exceptions here or there, give or take. But I think that's kind of the, the high level. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I think it's kind of a debatable point whether you know UASF essentially pushed the miners by playing this game of chicken into saying, okay, okay, we'll just we'll mine the Segwit, we'll signal for Segwit, and you can have Segwit. Or whether it was kind of like you were saying, it's kind of like all the sides could just say they were winners out of this. Um, so if we were to sort of fast forward now, now we're in 2021, we're looking at Taproot and we're sort of talking about how to activate it. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts around some of the main proposals around Taproot activation? And obviously it would be a great point here to chat about uh, your proposal of uh, you know, modern soft fork activation. Yeah, so 
so the last fork we did is SegWit. So prior to SegWit, you know, we had a pretty regular cadence of, of soft forks every, every year or so. Um, we haven't done one since. I think a lot of people are burnt out on the whole the, the drama and the fighting and the infighting and the crossfighting and the whatever. Um, and so there's kind of not a clear precedent for exactly what should happen next and how we should do future soft forks. And I think especially because what the resolution of SegWit was depends on who you ask, whether you ask someone who, who thought UASF activated and that's how SegWit was activated or whether you thought uh, BIP91 activated and that's how SegWit was activated. So, so there's, there's different very valid views and each of those views is going to take something very different into this conversation about how we should activate things in the future and, and what their view of kind of how SegWit got activated was. I tried to kind of kick off the discussion of how to activate Taproot. So Taproot's uh, been in the design phase since uh, I think maybe before SegWit was activated or maybe only a few months thereafter, or maybe early 2018. It was in the design phase and it's very slowly been developed um, and kind of has reached a, a point where it's the code is there and it, it's it's kind of ready to go almost, um, but certainly there's no activation method and it's been there for, for a little bit. Uh, so I tried to kind of kick off the discussion of like, how do we activate SegWit about a year and a month ago or a year and two months ago, maybe um, with a long email thread called uh, a modern software activation. So if you Google uh, site colon list.linuxfoundation.org modern software activation, you should be able to pull it up. That's probably a, a pretty interesting read if also just because it describes kind of what I thought were the goals for software activation and kind of the, the goals of keeping the network together and the goals of, of emphasizing consensus and emphasizing the importance of that and, and all the kind of goals that I thought we should carry into any software activation design. Um, and then I concluded with a, a concrete proposal and I said kind of, you know, in we should just go with the old way if we can, you know, to do this kind of classic BIP, BIP9 uh, where you just let minor signal. Um, and, and if it times out, it times out. Like we're not in a huge rush for this. Taproot's not you know, going to fundamentally change Bitcoin for users. Uh, and, and we don't need it today. It's been in, in progress for, for years. And if it doesn't come for a few more years, uh, no one's too heartbroken. Um, so if, if it times out, it times out, and then we revisit, and then we, we take advantage of the fact that we had this whole activation process where hopefully the community was very active and involved um, as learning and as evidence that the community carefully analyzed Taproot and took a part in that activation process. And that as a result of that, uh, that learning, then we can say at that point, either yes, this thing has clear community consensus, everyone supports Taproot itself, uh, but there were, you know, maybe some miners just didn't bother upgrading in time, or, or maybe there's some, some other weird stuff going on, like happened with SegWit. Uh, and as a result, we should just do a flag day activation and say like two years down the road or three years down the road, Taproot's going to be active. And, and that's just what it's going to be. And that, that multiple years gives us time to make sure all the nodes get upgraded. And, and then it's shouldn't be a big deal and, and not a big risk um, to having kind of a chain split from, from having the network be half upgraded and half unupgraded nodes. So that was my, my concrete proposal at the time. Um, I, I still think it kind of captures the, the nuance of both having 
a process, a, a, for, a public, clearly visible and clearly understood process through which uh, everyone kind of gets to voice their vote and every like there's this thing that's going to activate and people definitely by that point uh not only have will have seen it uh but but will know that everyone else saw it and and can make their voice heard but also taproots just it's relatively i mean it's very carefully designed uh and is is super unobjectionable um and so so there's, there's very low likelihood that we we don't just see it activate so that was my proposal about a year and change ago. Uh, it didn't really go anywhere. I, I didn't put enough effort into kind of following up and, and, and trying to implement stuff and, and getting it going. Um, more recently, some efforts gone into uh, going a, a completely different way, um, or maybe. <laughs> more recently, um, there's been a proposal uh, by Luke uh, that is called BIP8. And it's in fact two proposal. It's not, it's not one concrete proposal. Um, and it, it's more kind of optimized for UASF. Um, and it, it's, so there's, there's two halves of it. So there's BIP8 with lock-in on true set to false, and there's BIP8 with lock-in on true set to true, uh, lock-in on timeout, sorry, set to true. Um, and so BIP8 with lock-in on timeout set to false is basically the good old way, the SegWit just signal. Um, it, it has some minute technical changes that are good, and, and, and but don't really impact the way it works ultimately. Um, BIP8 with lock-in on timeout set to true, on the other hand, is several things. So one, at the end of that kind of one-year period that we had for SegWit, or whatever the, the period is, um, instead of timing out and not activating the software, we just activate it, right? So we, we say, uh, oops, it's been a year, um, we're just going to start enforcing this rules. So that's one part of logging on timeout equals true. The other part is it, it's actually two forks. So it's not just at the end of a year, if it's timed out, you apply the fork of taproot. But first, you apply a different fork, and that fork is you force all the blocks to signal. So again, it's kind of like the UASF BIP 148 design, where you say, oh, it's been a year. Now every block must signal for taproot, or it's invalid. And then after two weeks or one week, I don't know the exact timeline, then after a while of doing that, then Taproot actually becomes active. The process of this for signaling really strongly creates this risk that UASF and BIP148 had of consensus split, right? Because suddenly, instead of taking the software like Taproot, where in fact, the way modern softworks are designed, Taproot, SegWit, and a few before that, is if you are a miner running old software, so not just a user running old software, but a miner running old software will not actually generate an invalid block according to the new rules. So even though the miner's software, the, the miner's node that they installed three years ago, has no idea what Taproot is, obviously Taproot's way newer than that software, that miner will still not include any transactions which are invalid according to the taproot rules. So this is actually a really cool property, um, and it's it's done by basically Bitcoin nodes when they're mining, uh, Bitcoin Core nodes when they're mining. They don't include any transactions that look weird. So and so we define weird basically as that transaction is like obviously insecure. Like no one would want to put that on the blockchain because anyone could just take your money. And, and walk away. 
unless a soft fork is activated. And then all the new rules, so taproot and segwit and various other things, use this fact and say, we're only going to change the way weird looking transactions work. And we're going to apply new rules to them and, and give them a lot of interesting properties. And new nodes will include those transactions, but old nodes will just ignore them and they, they won't mine invalid blocks. This keeps the network together even better. It's a really great design because both old nodes and new nodes can continue mining. Both old nodes and new nodes can stay on the network and validate all the blocks. And the only case where the network actually forks is in the case of a malicious miner. So someone who spends, you know, uh, throws away the, the value of the block to mine an invalid block. Uh, and obviously old nodes will look at that and think it's valid and continue mining on top of that. Um, or someone kind of does this accidentally. Uh, either way, they lose the value of that block. So it, it's less likely um, and it could happen today. And it does happen very rarely, but occasionally. But it significantly reduces, but this design of using weird looking transactions, we call them standard transactions, to apply new rules on the network just really reduces the risk of this fork. Back to BIP8, BIP8 with lock-in on timeout equals true, which includes both a flag day activation of Taproot and a flag day activation of this force signaling, throws that property away, right? So old nodes will not be signaling for Taproot, old, old mining pools that aren't configured for Taproot aren't going to be signaling for it, and will mine an invalid block according to the, the rules that say every block must signal. That results, of course, in old nodes might follow this chain that has what's now invalid, uh, but has these non-signaling blocks in it. And potentially you run the risk of having two coins, at least for a while, depending on how much hash power you have on each side, um, and having double spends or having people, uh, having users get screwed. That's kind of the big drawback. On the other hand, I think BIP8, uh, Luke and other BIP8 advocates argue that uh, this this fourth signaling property is nice because it makes it very clear by looking at the blockchain what is or hasn't activated, right? That you can look at the chain, you can say, hey, look, uh, all these miners are, are signaling for, for taproot and thus it's going to activate in, in whatever the time period is. Um, of course, it's also designed to kind of optimize for UASF and BIP 148, right? To, to enable this um, kind of after the fact forcing of a soft fork to, up, to activate, right? So instead of saying, we're going to do this one year uh, activation window and it's going to time out, but we're not going to care. We're just going to uh, do it again, but with a longer time horizon and then activate it at that point, but in a, a, a more conservative and careful way, um, they say, we're going to do this one year time horizon, but we really don't want to wait any longer than a year. And uh, we refuse to wait any longer than a year. And so we're going to ensure that we have this other alternative, this lock in on timeout equals true, where we force signaling and we do a BIP 148 UASF again and uh, enforce that the um, block signal and thus upgrade the whole network, uh, not just our little kind of UASF group of nodes uh, and users. Back to the show in a moment. Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. So if you are sitting on a single signature hardware wallet and you're thinking about upgrading to multi-sig and you're not really sure on how to do it yourself, well, Unchained Capital can help you. They've got a really easy web interface and you can 
have that there as an option. You can buy two hardware wallets. There's no setup or storage fees if you build it on your own. On the other hand, if you want the white glove treatment, the Vault Concierge service is available. They can ship you some hardware wallets, answer your questions, and deposit Bitcoin in your vault. Use the code Lavera for a discount there. Unchained Capital are also great if you're thinking about self-directed ret Bitcoin retirement accounts or if you're a company looking to move Bitcoin to Treasury. They've got a range of features. They've got awesome content on their blog, such as Parker Lewis's series, Gradually Then Suddenly. Go check them out at unchained-capital.com. Cyphersafe.io are producing the Cypher Wheel product. So if you've invested in Bitcoin and you're going through this bull run, it's also time to think about your backups and recovery. Do you have your 12 or 24 word seed backed up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident? Don't be one of those people who just relies on that piece of paper. Get a metal backup seed. The cipher wheel comes in a wheel shape. It's stainless steel. It also has a padlock tamper evident seal, so you know if it has been opened. If something were to happen to you, have you thought about if your loved ones would have access to your bitcoins and would they know how to recover it? Well, this is why you need to think about getting a cipher wheel. Go to cyphersafe.io and use the code LEVERA for 10% off. Lend at HodlHodl is a non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform so you can lend and borrow globally and anonymously. Don't have your stablecoins lying around, lend them and earn attractive returns. HodlHodl's lending allows you to earn 25% APR on average, which is one of the highest returns on the market. Also, there's no need to sell your bitcoins even if you are short of funds. This is a way to get some fiat stablecoin liquidity without the need to trust your money to any one party. On Lend at HodlHodl, your BTC collateral always remains locked in a two of three escrow. Lend at HodlHodl is a Bitcoin DeFi, allowing peer-to-peer -peer lending and borrowing directly between its users. With HodlHodl's Lend platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go check it out at lend.hodlhodl.com. Back to the show. I see. And um, so perhaps one, so as you're saying, one of the benefits, I guess, of you know considering the lot equals true side is that it's unambiguously been activated and there's no sort of no two words about it. But um, I guess the one of the caveats then is seeing how many miners are supporting this thing. Because again, it's a decentralized network. And, you know, there are efforts, uh, I don't know, Alejandro from Paulin um, has been running a website called taprootactivation.com. And uh, last I checked, I think it's got something like 88% of, uh, of the network, uh, counting by hash power, is in support of Taproot. Um, so I suppose... Maybe that's one of the counter arguments somebody could present in favor of the lot equals true style approach. They could say, well, look, so long as we have a very high percentage of miners who are pro this uh, idea, then that theoretically that reduces the risk of one of those old nodes getting, you know, inadvertently pushed onto the wrong chain because, you know, a very high percentage of the miners are, are in favor of this change. Right, to some extent. Um, so, so certainly in, in the case that you have a really high percentage of hash power, uh, it, Taproot will just activate through the course of the normal minor signaling period, right? So it doesn't actually matter whether you do login on timeout equals true or false, uh, or you do bit nine even. Um, I, if there's enough hash power, they all signal readiness and the fork activates and that's the end of the, end of the story. Uh, there's no, there's not kind of this bad end, potential end game. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, 
the locking on timeout equals true, um, you know, obviously you only get to that point if there's not enough hash power. And if there's not enough hash power, that's where you start to see these risks of of chain split and potentially double spins and, and two different tokens and all that kind of stuff. So it's yeah. you know it's hopefully an unlikely outcome, but it's a potential one nonetheless. And you know originally there was kind of some yeah you know, cor- people were kind of corralling around just do lock in on timeout equals false, and you know there, there's a lot of disagreement about what should happen if. Uh, it doesn't activate over the course of the signaling period. Um, so whether people thought UASF activated or whether people thought BIP91 activated or whether people thought UASF was too risky or or a great uh, battle for Bitcoin of users beating out businesses or, or whatever your views were, you know, there was, uh, there was a lot of debate thus about how Taproot should eventually activate uh, if the kind of initial signaling window fails. Um, and so for a while, there was kind of this consensus building of like, well, let's just do lock and on timeout equals false and, and we'll kind of figure the rest out later because hopefully we won't get there because probably we won't get there because Taproot is, is pretty unobjectionable. And, and like you said, the miners are already kind of committing to it at, at a relatively high threshold. Um, so hopefully we won't need to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. But, so one but, other but, point. Uh, so go on. Oh, sorry. Um, I should finish this thought. So uh, that, that was great until uh, a number of people, you know, obviously as the, the debate rate uh, continued, eventually there was a contingent and, and still is a contingent that's now arguing like, screw it, we're going to run uh, locking on timeout equals true, no matter what other people run, what, what core does or what uh, businesses run or what miners run, we're just going to run that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to optimize for a UASF and that's just where we're going to go. Um, and all of a sudden, of course, that means we have to debate what the end game is, what, what should happen if there is a timeout, because suddenly instead of, you know, we're just going to try this, and if it fails after a year, we'll revisit it, and then we'll hash this out. Um, now it's, well, people are going to run potentially incompatible network uh, consensus rules on the network. They're going to, you know, basically pull out the gun and, and start playing the game of chicken before there's any reason to. Um, or before there's any risk of Taproot not activating, uh, and thus we kind of need to to figure out and make sure that if, if something does go wrong or this game of, of chicken that's already kind of starting uh, doesn't end well and someone doesn't blink, that the network kind of handles it and that you know hopefully the things don't completely fall over and then catch fire. I see, yeah. And I think one point as well, maybe to spell out potential risks in this scenario, there might be some users out there. So obviously, people who are listening to my show or people who are following Bitcoin Twitter, they tend to be more engaged Bitcoin users. But let's say some user out there who's on a lightweight client, they have some kind of SPV, simplified payment verification, they're using that or they have some old node there's a risk for that user, let's say they are just innocently accepting payment in Bitcoin, and there's a risk then that they get pushed or they are inadvertently acting on the wrong chain, even though they've theoretically done, you know, they waited for some confirmations, but the reality is they're on the minority chain without knowing it, and there's potentially a risk for them. Um, and, and I suppose, yeah, we can say, hey, you should have run your full node, but the reality is not everyone um, is at that level, right? Right. Or... Or you're running a full node that's that's you know a few months out of date or or what have you you know obviously we see that a lot in uh, folks either 
because they don't read Reddit or Twitter, because social media tends to be tends to be pretty bad for a lot of people, uh, or or often language barrier is a problem. You know, there's there's not a lot of you don't get the same information uh, when you're in a, a different language speaking Bitcoin community, um, and so so you might not have upgraded your node or might be running something else, um, and so it's not entirely out of the question. You know, certainly the the people who are active on Twitter, maybe not so much, but that's really only a minority of Bitcoin users, even full node users. Yeah. And the other practical, there's some other practical components to consider as well, because many users might be using, let's say, a package node software, right? They might be on Umbral or MyNode or Noddle or Raspberry Blitz or one of the or BTC pay server. And then the question then is, how do the package node uh, developers, what are they going to do about it to give their users you know, if if there if it does end up that there's a choice to be given to the user, or if it's more like no, we're just going to choose what we think the users would want. Right. I mean, yeah. At the end of the day, just having multiple different consensus rules on the network causes an inordinate amount of problems. Yeah, and I so I suppose there's also I think I've also heard a, uh, and I think you probably agree with this as well. This is like a like a meta argument that you know this argument that you don't want to centralize too much into making it look like the developers are the ones who are i guess putting out the software that activates it with lot equals true they want it to be seen like maybe there's you know you shouldn't have a large business or a government who comes to try to put pressure on developers in the future for some other future soft fork and potentially that's an argument why if you had lot equals false and you just let the miners signal it and activate it, then it arguably shows that the ecosystem as a whole is more decentralized. So I suppose that's also another argument that I've heard. What's your uh, thought on that? Yeah, yeah. So I've argued something something similar before, uh, for example, in the, that modern software activation uh, post a while back, um, that yes, and it, it is very important that uh, it, I think I've, I've phrased it before, is like it should be obvious to a casual observer that this fork that is in that's being included in Bitcoin Core has a kind of broad consensus among the ecosystem. Uh, you know, certainly the vast majority of people don't really care about Taproot and it's not going to impact them. Uh, but for those who it does impact, it's, it's going to be kind of a, a net positive and a nice little win for them um, or potentially a large win for them. Um, that, that can come from many different ways. Uh, whether that's, I think, doing it via kind of a lot equals false activation where, where you have the miners also... Uh, signaling, and that also creates a little bit of delay, and it's kind of more of a kind of two-party, uh, you know, if, if a casual observer might think that it's kind of a two-party activation, even though there's, of course, more people involved. Um, also, it could come from, you know, a, a kind of drop-down fight in the community over the activation method. And so I think it's actually kind of, in one way, as much as it's significantly delaying Taproot, in one way, it's kind of nice that we're having this kind of uh, drop-down debate uh, fight in the Bitcoin community over how to activate Taproot because all of it is, almost all of it includes a clear caveat of, well, we all agree on Taproot. Like almost everything I've seen <laughs> written about uh, this or, or discussed this is like, yes, everyone agrees with Taproot, it's good. Um, and not only, you know, we have this this minor website now that, that's indicating uh, large support for Taproot from Hashrate. There is the Bitcoin Optech group ran Taproot workshops with large businesses. Uh, I mean, it was before COVID, so a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, um, analyzing a lot of the um, analyzing a lot of the, uh, the kind of Taproot details and getting into the nitty gritty with 
uh, Bitcoin kind of CTO level. Um, and they didn't have any material objections and also development community doesn't have material objections. And now we're, we're making very clear and then learning uh, that the community doesn't have any material objections. But, but this, this kind of fight has made it pretty clear to a casual observer. And I think that's a really good outcome and it might give us more latitude to maybe take more aggressive approaches like um, a flag day activation uh, not necessarily lot equals true with the, the problematic for signaling, but but a flag day activation um, that's kind of without giving off an air of developers. Deciding because we can point to all of these other things and this broad discussion, um, which make it pretty clear what was required to get to this point. Yeah. Also, there is a question around what level of minor signaling uh, we would be looking for. So I think most people, so it seems that 95% seems to be the current threshold. Um, but is it possible then that, you know, let's say it kind of hangs around at 90%. Uh, would that be an issue going forward? Or do you think that just through the normal variation, we might see enough blocks signal to make it happen anyway, even if ninety only 90% of miners come to the party? Yeah, so I think there's already been some discussion um, and, and potential to decrease the, the threshold in, in BIP8 to, to 90% instead of 80 per, instead of 95%. Uh, but, but more broadly, uh, you know, plus or minus a few percent isn't going to make a difference. The, the kind of variation, as you mentioned, is, is going to eventually hit your target if it's plus or minus a few. Um, but at the same time, we don't want, you know, recall the reason for this kind of readiness signaling on the part of miners is to indicate yes, I'm ready to enforce the rules. And thus, because we all miners are ready to enforce the rules or a large portion of miners are ready to enforce the rules, we're going to uh, keep the network together and there won't be kind of this small minority of miners mining forks and creating an alternate chain that might lead to these reorg problems and, and uh, double spend issues. Um, and so you don't want to reduce that threshold really very much. It doesn't take very much to get into a problem to get into a state where, you know, three confirmations, you know, all of a sudden you have issues at three confirmations or potential issues at three confirmations or, or maybe even more. Um, so so I, I don't think it'll be reduced beyond 90%. Uh, 90% is already a, a big reduction, but, but, but yeah. Yeah, I see. And also, could you shed some light for us in terms of Bitcoin Core's code and its ability, uh, at least currently, to deal with a chain split in this kind of scenario. So if hypothetically, let's say uh, this happens that people, um, you know, let's say Bitcoin Core puts out uh, the release with um, lot equals false by default. And, you know, some people in the community are running an alternate client or creating uh, the UASF version with lot equals true. What's the current state of Bitcoin Core's code to deal with that? Um, very little. <laughs> there, were, there was some kind of emergency fixes rushed in immediately prior to the Segwit2x fork, uh, because Segwit2x was essentially that outcome, right? Where you have some set of nodes on the network that are claiming to be Bitcoin nodes, saying they're Bitcoin nodes, um, that suddenly are enforcing completely different consensus rules and are on a different chain, in fact. Um, and, and kind of you need a way for these nodes to automatically go find other nodes on their chain, right? You don't know kind of what the breakdown's going to be. You don't know, maybe there's going to be a lot of uh, UASF nodes, if I go to X nodes, or maybe there's not going to be many of them. But either way, you need to kind of find your way into kind of evenly splitting the network in an automated fashion um, in, in just in the software. 
And uh, so Bitcoin Core has some stuff to do this. It's a little slow. You know, there weren't many uh, Segwit2x nodes, so it was uh, not as big a concern. But more importantly, there, it was just kind of last minute um, because we had to, to ship it before the, the fork happened. Uh, so, you know, if we're going into this with a large portion of the community declaring that they're going to run UASF uh, bit lot equals true, then, you know, maybe it makes sense to start kind of shoring up that code and kind of dealing with that potential outcome in a better and more automated way so that if there is a chain split and, you know, it, it's, I think it's kind of damning if, if it happens and I think we should do everything we can to avoid it. But if there is that in some way, you need the network to kind of split evenly and have two coins so that the market can figure it out. Because ultimately, that's that's the only thing that, that you can really do at that point. You have two coins. People are just going to have to trade back and forth until we figure out which one has value and which one doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you, you might have touched on this before, but I think it might be an interesting just to hear your response. I suppose the Luke Dasher argument is essentially, as I've read his email, maybe I've misunderstood him, but as I understand him, I think his argument is that the overall risk is maximally reduced by lot equals true being the only deployed parameter. So what's your view on that idea of just putting lot equals true as the default that call, that Bitcoin Core puts out there and just the network and everyone proceeding on that basis. Right. I mean, it's kind of a, it, it's dependent on a false dichotomy, right? Where it's like the only two possible options for taproot activation are bitbait lot equals true and bitbait lot equals false. Where you have, you know, if, if those are the two only possible ways we could do it, it's, it's obviously not, we could turn off the force signaling part, etc. Then you can, then you can make that argument. So it's a solid argument by saying like, obviously the network is better together. It's better with only one set of rules on the network. It's the only way the network stays together and, and, and it's healthy. Um, and if there's this small minority who's screaming about how they're going to run lot equals true, no matter what, then assuming there is not a similar small minority on the other side, which I don't know if that's true. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Um, then it makes most sense for everyone to just run not equals true. But that's a lot of assumptions that tend to be kind of bogus, right? First of all, it's not the only two possible ways we could deploy the software, I think. Uh, not only could we deploy lot equals false, but also we could deploy a flag day that doesn't include uh, lot equals true, uh, doesn't include forced signaling, or in fact, doesn't even include signaling at all, which I've argued for more recently is just saying, like, let's just do a flag day get rid of all of these games, all of this UASF debate and people trying to create different clients to force it to activate faster and whatever, and just say, look, we can demonstrate very clearly that there is consensus here. Um, we're, you know, not just can demonstrate, but do demonstrate and, and you know, go through all the details. Um, and thus, we're just going to activate Taproot on, let's say, August of next year and screw it. Gotcha. So it would be kind of just another way, instead of even having lot true or false, it's just literally, we're just going live with this thing August next year. And that's that's that, because it seems that there's enough community support for this thing that it's just time to get it done. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And and, and, and just, let's just avoid the drama, right? And avoid this, this kind of risk and uncertainty and, and question marks over who's running what and people trying to convince other people to run different software and, and trying to create two different networks and let's just 
you know, do it and, and sidestep all the drama, basically. Right. And I think this is another bringing up the idea of practical considerations. Of course, obviously in Bitcoin, we say don't trust verify, but of course, not everybody is capable of reading Bitcoin core code. And if somebody were to release an alternate client, then how does every user get comfortable about that software and that code that they're now running? And are they running an alternate thing instead of what their default setup was? Like there's all these questions that, you know, very few people are in that uh, at that level of being able to actually read all the code and m- decide for themselves properly, hey, I'm comfortable to run this alternate software. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a mess for a number of reasons. Just trying to have multiple different versions on the network is just a mess in every possible way. But yeah, that's that's definitely one reason. So I guess if you had to say what you thought was most likely, what would you say is the most likely uh, pathway forward here? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I certainly don't know. Um, I, obviously, if I, there's only one thing I can say for certain, and that's that uh, all this debate and and kind of all this kind of people digging in on their sides and and insisting that theirs is the only true way is is delaying taproot, <laughs> and it is going to result in you know potentially months more debate, and and that's just going to mean longer before tap, not just before taproot activates, but longer before it's clear exactly how it's going to activate and longer before that software is deployed and longer before developers start just kind of taking it for granted that it's act- that it's going to activate and where they can move on and start working on other stuff, right? As long as it's kind of this this thing that still we can't deploy it yet and we can't uh, figure out what the activation parameters are yet and we can't, uh, you know, it just prevents people from moving on, to, prevents people from building stuff on top of it, at least to some extent, you know, people aren't going to quite as aggressively build things assuming taproot until it's you know, clearly on the horizon. Um, and so it, it's just delaying everything. It's basically the only thing I can say for sure. Yeah, it does um, seem... And, and I think, you know, there, there will be some people, I think, who will try to run, try to get the network to run a different set of consensus rules, and, and there will be some nodes that do that. Uh, hopefully it's, it's a very small number, and hopefully uh, most people ignore them, and hopefully uh, that it, it's not uh, people who are kind of transacting with those nodes, which... Which I don't think it will be. It won't be kind of the large businesses or people who are doing large volume transactions running kind of alternate consensus rules. I see, yeah. Though, I mean, it seems with 90% of miners on board, assuming 90% is correct, then it seems like we are very likely to get it. It's just a question of the timing and maybe that's really all it is. So I guess, so that's, I guess in your view then, that's why you've been pushing this idea of trying to, I guess, separate the idea of forced signaling from the idea of flag day and just have a flag day activation. And basically, given that there has been, uh, to your earlier point in the modern software activation, that there's been no sustained you know, objections to Taproot, basically nobody is disagreeing with it. Um, it's just time to have a flag day. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I certainly think that's one way forward. Um, you know, I threw it out there, I guess, just a few days ago. So we'll see what the response is um, from, from kind of, obviously, uh, some of the folks who are very strongly in favor of, of lot equals true responded very negatively, but I, I don't think that's you know necessarily indicative of very much. Uh, so we'll see what the response is kind of from the broader community when, when people who aren't spending all their time on this get around to, to taking a look and thinking about it deeply. Um, so that's one idea. You know, yeah, I, I really don't know uh, where it's going to go. Um, but, but, you know, we'll get taproot eventually. Uh, it's just going to have to, this, this debate is going to have to hash itself out in one way or another. 
Yeah, I see. Uh, and in terms of your current focus uh, nowadays, uh, can you, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Yeah, so actually none of this is my is my full-time job anymore. I don't actually uh, work on Bitcoin Core full-time anymore. Um, I work for Square Crypto, so that's uh, where the team at Square who works on open-source Bitcoin projects who are not related to the team that works on, on Cash App or any other Bitcoin projects within Square. Uh, our job is just to, to improve Bitcoin and, and hopefully uh, improve the, the user experience for everyone using Bitcoin. Um, and so within that, we work on a project called Lightning Development Kit, or the LDK. Uh, it's at lightningdevkit.org if you want to check it out. Uh, but basically, our, our thinking is, you know, Lightning, the existing Lightning network and the existing Lightning node implementations are great. Um, they're, they've matured a lot over a number of years. Um, and, you know, if you want to take Lightning and run it on your Raspberry Pi or on your server and accept payments, uh, they're really great, but they're not very modular and they're not integratable, right? So if you have an existing wallet, you know, if you're a mobile wallet developer, you know, maybe you're making a new wallet, um, or you want really tight integration, they're not really an option for you, right? You can't take LND or C Lightning and run it inside your mobile app. Um, you can kind of with LND, but it's it's really slow and pretty janky. And, and the developers, I think we've spoken to a number of developers who've tried it, and, and it's just not a good user experience. You can't build a great user experience out of it because it's just not designed for that. Um, so, you know, we started kind of from the ground up and instead built something that's uh, this cross-platform library for building a Lightning node, right? So it's not kind of a Lightning node itself. Uh, we have some, some example Lightning nodes um, that you could use, but but it's really designed to say, you know, I want to integrate Lightning and build kind of a Lightning node into my existing application in some way, whether you're uh, a mobile wallet that already downloads the blockchain and already has an on-chain wallet. You don't want to have kind of a second blockchain downloading logic and on-chain wallet from, from your C Lightning or LND integration, um, or whether, you know, you're maybe you're a, a corporation who has kind of a lot of back-end infrastructure and you want much more tighter integration with uh, your existing infrastructure instead of kind of just running a node and kind of interacting with it over an RPC. Um, you know, maybe you're a mobile wallet and you want to do live backups of the, the Lightning state into Google Drive or into the cloud so that you can uh, access it on multiple devices safely and without race conditions. So again, all of these things, it's, it's a really flexible library it's integrate, to integrate into uh, your application to build, Lightning, to build Lightning into your application instead of it kind of being an appendage that you just talk to. Uh, and, and it can hopefully lead to a, a, lot, a lot better UX, especially on mobile, um, but across a few different architectures for, for Lightning. Yeah, and uh, as uh, from my, I recall from my earlier discussion with Steve Lee, uh, I think he was mentioning how kind of ironically, in one way, it, it would have been a good idea for someone for the team, say at Electrum, to use this. Obviously, they didn't end up going that direction. But have you got any other? I guess um, have you had interest from other wallet developers and other you know software developers who are interested and in looking to use uh, Rust and use the LDK? Yeah, so yeah, sadly, Electrum uh, started building their own Lightning implementation before we were kind of available, right, like for use. But but it is a good example case where it took you know, multiple years of man hours to build a robust lightning implementation is really not an easy task. 
Um, and so we kind of provide that out of the box for people. So we've spoken to, to a few wallets, um, getting people from, you know, we, we've had a lot of interest, uh, a lot of verbal interest, but getting people to go from uh, verbal interest to, yes, I'm going to spend uh, a while kind of redoing our user experience around Lightning and, and building that in and, and, and integrating is, is a big ask. Um, so we, we finally have kind of as of the last few months have uh, pretty good language bindings, so in some different languages where you can can take the Lightning Development Kit. It happens to be written in Rust, but we can compile it for basically any platform, and you can use it from C or C++ or Java, or uh, we're working on some, some JavaScript that you can call it directly from. Uh, you can work with it from Swift. Um, so basically, whatever language you're already writing in, you can use the, the Lightning Development Kit uh, directly. Some of that's a little early, but but it works and it's it's usable. Um, so so you know, folks who were kind of waiting for that, we're we're talking to again and are they're kind of starting to play with it. But certainly, you know, if anyone else who's listening wants to play with you know, building your own Lightning node into your application in your own custom way, uh, you know, come go to lightningdevkit.org and kind of join our Slack and ask around. And, and we're really happy to to help people integrate in in whatever way it makes sense. Yeah, and I guess. If I've understood you correctly, it might also make sense even in the case where, let's say, not necessarily somebody who runs a Bitcoin wallet now, but let's say even, you know, the Zebedee guys, they're doing Lightning Gaming. Maybe it would make sense for some other game developer to just go straight to using LDK if they wanted to build a Lightning wallet into their game, right? Yeah, potentially. Yeah, if you want to have a, a, a Lightning wallet built into your program, this makes a lot of sense, right? Versus... You know, I think the, the Lightning Gaming stuff is focused on, you know, everyone's going to have one Lightning node that's running on their system that's LND, and then kind of the games will will talk to that wallet. Um, and that, that might make sense if you have, you know, a lot of games, you don't want to have a lot of different wallets, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, maybe you have, you want to integrate Lightning into Steam or something where like LDK would make sense for that kind of integration, uh, where you can much more tightly control how the Lightning uh node works um, and you have complete flexibility basically in how the lightning node works and then uh, you can kind of expose that to the individual games. I think our big uh, initial use case is kind of around mobile where uh, we're just way lighter weight than the other options uh, and, and way more easy to integrate especially in mobile you have a lot of weird constraints. Yeah, very interested to see where that ends up and hopeful to see more people uh, getting into Lightning as well. So uh, Matt, just wanted to say big thanks for joining me on the show. Uh, before we let you go, where can listeners find you online? Yeah, so I'm uh, on Twitter occasionally at the Blue Matt, um, but, but come to the Lightning Dev Kit uh, Slack and ask me questions there. Excellent. Thank you, Matt. So I hope you found that illuminating in terms of explaining some of the different history around soft forks and the trade-offs around the different options and proposals that are being considered and discussed and even debated in the community. A few quick notes before we finish today. There is a Bitcoin job board. If you are interested in a Bitcoin job, go to bitcoinerjobs.co. There are jobs available at Lightning Labs, Bitcoin Magazine, Unchained Capital, Swan, Strike, Start9 Labs, and more. So go and check that out. Also, Bitcoiner Ventures. For those of you who are accredited investors, there is a deal live. So go to bitcoinerventures.com to join the syndicate, and you have the option, but not the obligation, to participate. And finally, get the show notes at stefanlibera.com slash 257. Thanks, and I will see you in the Citadels. <laughs> <laughs>